want to pray with you before we step into the text and fill you in on one detail of uh, part of our church. Um, an individual by the name of Trish Brown was injured Friday, and we're going to pray for her during this prayer time. Uh, Trish fell down a flight of stairs on Friday, and she's in Sparrow Hospital and um, broke multiple bones in her body, uh, punctured lung, broke her ribs, um, vertebrae in the spine, and there'll be a surgery potentially on Monday if everything goes well for her, but we want to lift up Trish and her family and her husband, Mike, uh, for God's healing. Would you join me in that as, long, as well as praying for the text? Father, we come before you, and first of all, lifting up Trish and just asking for your healing power, that, that you would restore her 100%. And Father, that you would use these circumstances to allow her to be a witness, her family to be a witness to those who are watching them go through this. We pray for your strength emotionally for them, that you would come around them and meet their needs. And Father, we also turn our attention towards this text, and we would ask that you would give us insight and understanding into what you want us to take from it, especially, Father, the potential the tendency to become complacent towards you and, and to not be focused on you. We, we ask, Father, that you would stir us. If necessary, make us uncomfortable. God, I would ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible open to Luke 11, you're where I'm going with this, but I'm going to take you, first of all, not to tease you, but uh, on the screen to Hebrews chapter 11, a book you're somewhat familiar with after a, a few weeks in it. Hebrews 11:6 says this specifically, without faith, it is impossible to please him, meaning God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, don't let that pass by too quickly. Very tempting, especially after all the time we spent in the book of Hebrews, to let that fly by. It's telling us that if we believe that God is, he will reward you. He will reward your seeking, regardless of where you're at in the journey. If you've been a believer in Christ for 40 years, God will increase your knowledge if you seek him. If you're completely new to this, and maybe you're not even a believer yet, if you're at that point where you're willing to say, God, I believe that you are, God will reward that response. Many of you here today can say you are living evidence of that truth, that you are further along in your walk than what you were a year ago at this time, that you're increasing in your knowledge of God, perhaps further along than you were five years ago at this time. See, God rewards the searching and the probing. You started at some point in your walk and you said, God, I believe that you are. And God opened up the floodgates for you. Now, it's been my experience that people who are new to faith or people who are even yet new to church have a great advantage over those of us who have been raised in church or who have been walking with Christ for a long time. Here's their advantage. They're a blank slate. They don't know what they don't know. And so they don't come to this with preconceived ideas about God's nature and God's character. For those of us who have been walking with God for a while, it's very good for us to be recentered, to understand we don't know all there is to know about God. And to just make that statement keeps us from presuming wrongly upon Him. So let me just give you a couple basics before we go to this story in Luke chapter 11. Here's what we do know about God. We understand God cannot be seen by mortal man. Look with me on the screen. This comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus 33. 
God speaking to Moses, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness, meaning his glory, to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So Moses got to see the afterburner of God, if you will, got to see the glow of God, but he could not see God face to face. Well, that's Old Testament. What about New Testament? Well, we understand New Testament, 1 Timothy 6. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in an inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So God cannot be seen. He dwells in inapproachable light. He possesses immortality. And the second thing we discover is that in his word, he says, there is one who knows him and who has seen him. John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So we believe that God is, but that God cannot be seen. How can we know him? Very logical question. He provides two specific ways according to his word. And this is what his word says. First of all, in creation, Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse, meaning all of humanity. That's the first one. Second one is through Jesus. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, meaning at God's side, he has explained him. So according to God's own word, we start there. God is, he can't be seen, but he can be known. But if we stop there, that he can be known, we miss the relationship. And that's where Jesus comes in. The relationship begins with him. See, Jesus is more than just the one who makes God understandable, who explains him. Colossians 1.15 says this, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, herein lies a danger, and the danger is that we as believers who know Jesus Christ begin to believe that we know all there is to know, and we become presumptuous, believing that we know all there is about that one. You ever done that in a relationship? It's a very dangerous place to be when you stagnate in a relationship and you believe that you've discovered all there is about that person. My wife surprises me after all these years of being married on a weekly basis. I still am learning things about that woman, things that I didn't know about her. And that's the way that we need to be as we approach God because we don't ever want our relationship to stagnate. A few weeks ago, we learned in Hebrews that Moses got to the point where it looks like he became presumptuous. Now, mind you, as we looked at that passage, we discovered that Moses had already been before Pharaoh. The ten plagues had already happened. He'd already led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. But when he arrived at Mount Sinai, we're told that Moses was filled with fear and awe and said, I tremble in the presence of God. Why? Because he saw a new dimension to God, something that he had not seen before. So he understood there's more to God. Now, if that's true of Moses... Is it possible that God might need to reformat your thinking? That he might need to hit the reset button for you this morning? 
Could, could we possibly open ourselves up to that truth? Go with me to Luke chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, there's some in the racks in front of you. I want to take you back to the first century. There's a big crowd gathering. As a matter of fact, the first verse you're going to see on the screen is from Luke 12. And what we're told in Luke 12 is that where Jesus is at in this moment, there are thousands of people who have gathered to see him. Matter of fact, Luke 12, 1 said, there's so many people, they're literally trampling each other, trying to see Jesus. Now, this is very late stage in Jesus' life. It's near the point where they're going to crucify him. Luke eleven thirty seven says this, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. And the first question you might want to ask yourself is, if the Pharisees are already looking to kill Jesus and this is near the end of his life, why are they inviting him to dinner? What's going on here? What well, part of that's going to come out in this text? Understand this, the ancient Jews had a saying, God gave the law to the angels. The angels gave the law to Moses. Moses gave the law onto Joshua, and Joshua passed it on to the elders. The elders passed it on to the prophets, and the prophets passed it on to the leaders of the synagogue. Over the years, those individuals became responsible not only for preserving God's word and being meticulous about it, but for also for teaching and interpreting the law. And because they were intimately familiar with the word of God, they became absolute experts in it. And their primary role of spiritual leadership was greatly cherished among the people of Israel. We know them today as the Pharisees and the scribes. We read about them in the Bible. Their name pops up all of the time. William Barclay, who was a theologian that lived in the 1800s, made it his life study to understand the Pharisees. And he classified them into seven groups. I'm only going to give you three of them this morning. But this is what he discovered. He spent a lot of time in the Middle East. He said, first of all, he discovered there was the shoulder Pharisees. And these are individuals who literally would take papyra and they would write upon the papyra all the accomplishments that they had achieved in their life. And they would wear them on their shoulders for everybody in public to see. Look how great I am. I am a walking billboard to my own greatness. Can you imagine? The next group is this group of Pharisees that are known as the bruised and bleeding. Now, the Pharisees were very fastidious about fulfilling God's word, and when God's word says you will not lust for a woman, the Pharisees took this so literally that the bruised and bleeding Pharisees believed that if they were in public and walking down a street and a woman entered their presence, they had to close their eyes, and many of them, bam, walked right into a wall. The bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And then there's this third group known as the ever-seeking the ever-seeking were always seen in public shuffling along because they were writing so slowly as they walked, keeping a list of all the righteous things that they had done so they could turn their list in one day to God to get payback as a reward for their good life. See, what you're really looking at here is a group of people who are incredibly pompous and arrogant. Now remember, other people are watching them. We're told there's thousands of people who are gathered and this Pharisee invites Jesus out of the crowd to come into his house. There's no windows on houses in these days, and it was very common for people to gather around the outside of the house. So when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking to everybody listening. Verse 38, we find that the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, you may look at that and think, well, why didn't Jesus wash his hands before dinner? We're not talking about hygiene here. We're talking about a ceremonial washing. Matter of fact, the word that's used for wash here is the word baptizdo. And we use it because it's familiar for baptism, meaning a ceremonial cleansing. 
So they're concerned with ceremony, not hygiene. The Pharisees were fastidious about a ceremonial washing every time they came into their home to prepare food. So here's what they did. They picked up two hen's eggs and they would fill them, empty hen's eggs, with water. And one container would be dropped over the fingers and it would roll down the elbows. They would reverse their arm and allow it to roll from the elbow down to the fingertips. They did that with both arms. They believed that that made them clean in the eyes of the Most High. It's a ritual act. Nothing in the Bible commands that. There's no law for those kind of washings. But they believed this ritual cleansed them. So speculate with me for just a minute. Jesus didn't do that. Do you think that when Jesus sat down in his house, he forgot? Or is it more likely that he's trying to draw them into a conversation? Because Jesus knows the customs. So we would say, this isn't a mistake. There must be a purpose in this. So process this with me. This Pharisee has just invited Jesus into his house. The man has God in his room. And he can't see him because his ritualism is getting in the way. Is it possible that I can do the same thing? Can I be a Pharisee? Can I let my presupposed ideas about how God acts and behaves affect me to the degree that my agenda becomes more important than what God is trying to do? See, it's not that this guy doesn't know God's word. He's an expert in the law. He knows it inside and out. The, the problem here really is, is that he's got his own agenda, and it's much more important than God's agenda. So Jesus knows what he's thinking, and he responds in this moment. Go with me to verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So if the God who is, the one who we know exists, who according to Romans 1 has said, I created everything and I've made it evident for people to see it, the same God who made our outside also understands our inside. And that God says, your inside is full of filth. That's why you see David in Psalm 51 crying out to God, understanding that it wasn't his outside that was dirty. He said, my heart is where you need to start with me, God. David had seriously messed up in his life. And he came back to God and said, create in me a clean heart. Here's a way we can perhaps understand this. If an individual has a problem with a foul mouth, with a bad vocabulary, we don't tell them to go brush their teeth more often, right? That's not going to do it. You're not going to clean up foul language by brushing your teeth more often. It's a heart issue. It comes out of your attitude. So Jesus spoke to this, Luke 6.45. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So we see Jesus in verse 40 saying, you fools. No, we're not looking at him doing name calling. He's being harsh with them because they thought they're worthy of God, because of their own self-righteousness, because they avoided all the external defilements. Over time, this is humanity's capability, because we cannot see God, because we can't see his presence, 
we create methods. And, and by creating these methods, here's what we do. We think in our mind, we create, if, if we do enough good things at the conclusion of our life, if we have enough good credits stored up in a heavenly bank account, God's got to look at the good versus the bad and think, well, that person has done enough good things. I'm just going to have to let them in. So this is the mentality of the thinking going on here. God's just going to have to let us in, won't he? Have you ever had a conversation with people like that? People who believe that if they do enough good things, God's going to let them into his presence? So Jesus is going to take them to school. In other words, he's going to tell them, don't believe what you see on the outside. My mother used to say it this way, don't judge a book by its cover because there's something different going on inside. See, the Pharisees were really good at boasting about their financial giving. You're going to learn about that a little bit more next week. But here's the problem for them. They gave away so much money so fastidiously and in so much detail that they then began to broadcast it to the people of Israel, letting them know what their bank accounts held and how much they gave away to the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, when you're going to give alms, and alms is literally what you're giving, give what's within you. See, an alm is an offering. Give yourself fully, not just your action. That's true almsgiving. But they're so preoccupied with the external ceremonies, they're overlooking the more important eternal things. So what you're seeing here is a conflict being played out that is not a minor skirmish. This is extremely important because it goes to the very heart of true faith. There's two different views in our world today. There's God's truth and there's man's truth. And that was true in the first century. There's God's truth and there's man-made traditions. So you and I have to constantly be on the watch that tradition not take place of truth. In other words, what man is saying trumping what God is saying. Warren Wearsby said it this way, each new generation must engage in a similar conflict for human nature is prone to hold on to worn out man-made traditions and ignore or disobey the living word of God. See, complacency is very, very patient and it creeps into your life so slowly it begins to cause us to hear man's voice over God's voice. Do you know that in history, the Jews, God's chosen people, who were the keepers of his word, actually arrived at a point where they trusted man's word over God's word. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the writings that are known as the Talmud or the, the Mishnah. Those are part of the traditions of the Jewish people. But I want you to see this quote coming out of the Mishnah and the Talmud from the Jews. It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. If it is possible that they could do this as educated people who lived in their generation, is it not possible that we could do the same thing today and replace God's truth with man's truth? That God's truth would take a back seat to what man has to say? See, based on that, Jesus launches on them. Go with me to verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One thing you will always find God willing to do is tell you the truth about who you are. It's what his word does. 
His word tells you the truth about who he is, and it tells you the truth about who you are. Why would Jesus pronounce a woe upon them? Maybe you don't know what a woe is. Are you familiar with the term in our day and age, smackdown? Okay. This is a first century smackdown. You're looking at woe in, in the way that you're properly thinking of it. If you're thinking like, man, the last time I used woe is like maybe when I was watching MSU play football last night. Okay. Or, or U of M, perhaps. I'm not going to assume which fan you are. So when we watch football games or sporting events, we tend to see um, a, a really good play, and sometimes we'll go, whoa, did you see that? Well, that's, that's not too far off of the meaning of this word. Matter of fact, look at the meaning up on the screen. Ua'i. Ua'i is a primary explanation of, of, of grief. This might be a word you want to use later today when you're watching the Detroit Lions. <laughs> Matter of fact, try that in the room that you're in. Let's practice it. One, two, three. See, this is what Jesus is saying. Grief on you. Grief because of what you have allowed yourself to do. What did they do? They're so focused on the minutia of religion totally miss God, and they've got God in the room. How, how could they do that? They believe they've got God figured out. Do all the rules just the right way, and God has to let us in, right? I mean, he's obligated to us. We've done everything according to the law. That's why you see Jesus in verse 44 saying, you're like graves, that nobody even sees. In the first century, they didn't have hunter's orange. We have blaze orange today, fluorescent color. You can see it five miles away. All they had was white. Well, in their day, it was understood that they did not want to come in contact with dead bodies. And so they would take their white paint and go to the cemeteries and literally whitewash the tombs. They would paint the stone markers white so that by accident, no one would accidentally stumble onto a grave or, or cross a tomb because that would defile them and make them unclean. Jesus is saying, you're like those graves that nobody sees. You defile people when they come near you. <gasps> that he would say that about us, the Pharisees, the most righteous of the righteous, we cleanse ourselves. We know God's word. See, that's why he goes on about the greetings in the marketplace and the seats in the synagogue, because it's all about their reputation. To them, the reputation is the big deal. Well, your reputation is what people think you are, but your character is what God knows you are. And God is speaking about their character right to them. He knows them. So look at the response of one of the lawyers in the room. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Can you imagine that, a lawyer with feelings? <laughs> I Don't worry, there's lawyers they are good friends of mine. They don't take that too offensively. We have great Christian lawyers here at the church. Am I digging myself out of that hole? Okay. Yeah, really. These lawyers were insulted because they understood exactly what Jesus is saying. 
They feel the sting of it. The lawyers, or what we call in the Bible the scribes, the name is interchangeable, their major work, their biggest responsibility was to interpret the word of God, the oral law and the written law, the Old Testament. They were experts to the degree that everybody in the community would come to them for advice about the things of God. So he says, you insult us. Huberizo is the Greek word. We, we use in English the word hubris. That you would have the hubris to speak to us that way. Why would they even feel the right to defend these ceremonial washings? Well, it was handed down to them from their forefathers. Even though it's not in God's word, it's tradition. Yet there's something more going on here. It hurts to get a Band-Aid ripped off, doesn't it? He's exposed them, ripped the Band-Aid off, and, and shown their sin for what it is. But there's something even more important than that. When the Jews practice these washings, they're saying something about themselves and about other people. The washings were always practiced after they went to the marketplace when they were out in public. And God forbid that they would come in contact with a Gentile or worse yet, a Samaritan. They would rush back to their home and go through this ceremonial cleansing process. So what are they saying with these washings? They're saying, we're special. The other people are defiled, but we're special. This tradition of washing started centuries earlier to remind the Jews that they belonged to God. But it was corrupted over a period of time. It, it turned into this self-righteous degeneration of a ritual. Here's what they're conveying, and they conveyed it to the people around them. They conveyed the wrong idea about holiness. What does real holiness look like? What does real relationship with God look like? So Jesus is making it incredibly clear by asking these really hard questions through his accusations. What is your heart really set on? Let's move forward into a really big chunk, and I'm not going to break it down, but just one sentence out of it. But I want you to see what he says to the lawyers. Verse 46. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge." You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. You ever been at a dinner party where somebody talked like that? Not likely, right? <laughs> Can you imagine the tension in the room? You're only going to hear crickets after that. What's he referring to? Jesus is painting this broad stroke picture. People had animals, beasts of burden, camels and donkeys, and they piled on the baggage on those animals to the degree that those animals would buckle when they're trying to carry the load. Now, the owner of the animal would never carry a bag himself. He would carry a stick, and he would beat the animal if it began to stumble. 
So the animal's moving along, barely able to move, and the owner is beating it, getting it to prod along. That's what Jesus is saying about them. He's painting this picture. You've treated your fellow Jews exactly this way. You put all these heavy loads of religious tradition on them, things that I never intended. Now here's the, the repercussion of it. Because of the traditions, the common people in Israel processed what was going on and they came to a conclusion. It must be good works that gets me a place with God. That's what our leaders are telling us. It, it must be through my works of righteousness and if my good outweighs my bad, at the end of my life, God's gonna grant me entrance into heaven. Sound familiar? I have just had that conversation with somebody in the last few months. An older woman who's getting near the end of her life and, and I was just talking with her about Jesus and she did, didn't even want to go there but her response to me was, I've been a good girl all my life. God's going to let me in, right? When you bring up Jesus with a person like that, it, it's like speaking Greek to them. They don't understand. Not seeing that they need the relationship with God through Jesus. See, that's why the Pharisees and the scribes hated the gospel. That Jesus would come along and say, stop paying attention to what they're saying. I will take away your load of sin because your sin is always going to outweigh your works of righteousness. You can't come before God loaded with sin. The gospel, in short, that's what it is. So Jesus says in verse 52, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the knowledge. Here's what they're guilty of. They've robbed people of the knowledge of the word of God resulting in relationship. And they pointed them all to tradition. So they're locking up the truth and throwing away the key. What is the truth? Jesus is the truth. He's literally talking about himself. He's, he's the key to unlocking the Bible. Jesus is the key. And when you take away that key, you cannot understand God. It's not possible. So we go back to John 1.18 again in which it says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. See, Jesus is the key. That's why he says in verse 51 to bring this to an end, I tell you the truth. It's gonna be required of this generation. It's a shocking verse, but Jesus is saying, you miss me, you miss everything. Ultimate truth has come and they're rejecting it. Conversely, when you share Jesus, you're using the keys to the kingdom. You're unlocking truth when you talk about Jesus to your family and friends. You're doing exactly what he wants you to do, according to Matthew 16. Let's end this. It says in verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Over on the right-hand side of your notes, there's all these Greek words listed. Well, I'm not gonna get into them, but just understand what's going on there is they're in attack mode. They're holding a grudge against him, so they wanna trap him like an animal. This is rapid fire questions going back and forth. Here's their purpose, to catch him. Because Jesus has become a serious theological problem. We want our power base. They're willing to let what God is doing be thrown aside because of their own agenda. And they want to accomplish what they want to accomplish. So they follow him out of the house and just fire a barrage of accusations at him. 
What you've just seen is a dramatic lesson on truth versus tradition. Today, 2014, many people presume that they can make themselves acceptable to God. If they just do enough good things and avoid enough evil and observe the right actions, I'm good, right? I'm a good girl. God's got to let me in, right? That's the mentality. So I would respond with this question, and the next time you hear that, you can respond this way. How good do you have to be to stand before a holy God? How good do you have to be to stand in the presence of God Almighty? Can you get there on your own merit? See, because the only one to have ever seen God and knows God, Jesus says something entirely different than culture. He tells us there's only one way. But the enemy has a plan. The enemy has a plan to derail you from the truth and take you away from your relationship with God. So his plan plays on human nature. Where God says, don't lean into your own understanding, Satan says, trust your instincts. Lean lean into your wisdom. Just go with your gut. God's word says contrary. So here's how we leave this morning. We leave knowing this for sure. God is King of kings, Lord of lords, God Almighty. And he has said, there is one way to me, and that is through my son, Jesus Christ. And it's not going to happen through any of your own systems or your own works of righteousness. So we come all the way back around full circle to Hebrews 11.6. Without faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That tells me, church, that your God desires relationship. That's what he wants. It's as pure as it gets. God wants relationship with you, real relationship. And if you believe that he is, he will reward your seeking. If you're not there, if you're not a believer in Christ this morning, you're just kind of checking this out, but this resonates with you, first of all, recognize that's the Spirit of God. I couldn't do that. That's the Spirit of God prompting you. And and if that's true right now in your life, start there by just saying to God, I believe that you are, and I want to know you. You're not here by accident today at New Hope. Matter of fact, this is a great place to get to know God and to discover the living God of wonders. And as you've seen, there is only one way to know Jesus, and that's by humbling yourself and asking him to be your savior. And if you've already come to the conclusion that you've got too much sin in your life and that's not possible for you, Jesus already answers that question. He says, there's nothing that will keep you from the Father if you come through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus will forgive all your sin, but you have to start there. God, I believe that you are. Let's pray together, church, as we ask God to seal these truths in our heart. Father, you know who in this auditorium or over the course of this weekend, who the individuals are who need to respond to this.
So I would ask through your Holy Spirit in your gentle way that you work, that you would come alongside that individual and continue to guide and lead through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, for the, for the believers, for those who name the name of Jesus Christ, I ask that you help us to go on through this day with the capacity to identify where there is complacency in our life, where we have taken our relationship with you for granted. Perhaps, Father, even arriving at the place where we're stagnant and our life with you has become dull. God, I would ask that you would give us an invigoration. Reveal yourself. So, Father, for those who are feeling stagnated this morning, help them to declare that you are and in that seeking, reward it. Increase them, Father, in their faith. God, send us out with confidence now and with your blessing for having spent time studying your word and rejoicing in praise. Thank you for what you're doing here at this church. In Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, amen.